It is an absolute joy to be here. My brother and I, we've been here for a couple of days wandering around the city, getting lost pretty much every 10 minutes. Um, but we've fallen in love with this city, been here once before, been here to Bridgetown once before. We love this church. Um, and Tyler, you are the dearest of friends, and it is a joy doing ministry together to visit one another's churches. Before I launch in, can I just prophetically um, speak into what I sense the Lord is stirring in this place, in this season? As I was praying last night and as we were gathered in worship, this was the sense that the Lord is opening up a well in this place and fresh living water is going to begin to flow with greater intensity. And that well has to do with worship. This church has a global reputation for its incredible teaching in John Mark, you've had one of the best preachers on the planet. In Tyler, you now have one of the best preachers on the planet. It makes sense that you have a reputation as a center of teaching and training and spiritual formation. But I believe there's going to be a sound that comes out of this place. It's more than just the sound of great teaching. It's the sound of passionate hearts hosting the presence of God as they worship, right? That's what I believe. I believe God's stirring in this place. The second thing I sense is the Lord wants to remind us that his house is a house of abundance. His house is a house of abundance. I believe many of us in the room, we've tasted and seen the goodness of God in part, but our intellectual understanding of the goodness of God has gone beyond our experience of the goodness of God, and the Lord wants to remedy that. He wants to draw us into the abundance of his house. So Spirit, I pray you'd come. And if those words of you, I pray they would come to pass. That you'd open up a well of worship, passionate praise in this place where we host your presence and you move amongst us. And Lord, may we feast on the abundance of your house. This weekend we pray. Amen. 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 I was in a Zoom call about a week ago with a hundred or so US pastors. It's part of a learning community. Tyler's a part of it. Katia and Bethany are a part of it. We gather and we learn from one another. And this last call was around looking after our physical health. We're holistic beings. We need to look after ourselves emotionally, spiritually, mentally, but we need to look after ourselves physically. So there's a bit of content on that stuff. And then we went around this call explaining what we were doing to look after ourselves physically. Now, there was some great input. I was getting nervous as it came towards my turn. I'll tell you why. I've been limping around for the last week, and the reason I've been limping is because I have gout, which is fairly embarrassing, right? But, but I do have gout. And I was thinking, whatever I'm doing to look after my body, it's fundamentally not working, right? <laughs> so I don't want to speak into 100 US pastors when, when what I'm doing is going horribly wrong. So it gets to my turn, I'm panicking, I think I, I need to use humour to distract this moment. So I say to this Zoom call, I say, I've been reading a book which has been a bit of a game changer for me. Right Now, when you mention to US pastors that you've been reading a book, there is a lean-in moment. Like, excitement levels rise. I actually think anxiety levels rise for some pastors. Is there a Christian book I haven't read? Oh my goodness, I'm going to need to scribble this one down. So I say, there's a book I've been reading. It's been a bit of a game-changer for me. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Curry. 
I, I'm trying to cut down on how many curries I have. I've been having way too many Indian takeaways. So I've been reading this book, The Ruthless Elimination of, of Curry. And, and obviously it's a Zoom call. So everyone's on mute. I can't hear any laughter, right? <laughs> I look around the Zoom room. I, I can't see anyone laughing. But what I can see, quite a few pastors writing down, okay, yeah, the ruthless elimination of curry. Maybe it's the sequel. The first one was really good, but maybe this one's about diet, looking after your body. I'm getting that book. I'm getting that book. Um, and I realized my contribution to that learning community, and it's needed, is I provide a British accent and a bit of banter. And, and the people really soak that up. Um, I hope I'm going to provide more as we gather together for this weekend to lean in to see what's on the heart of God. A little bit of my story. I was born in 79. My childhood years were the 80s and the early 90s. And the reason I mention that is because during that time, there was a charismatic renewal movement that hit the UK that transformed the spiritual landscape of the church in the UK. My mum and dad were leading a church that was experiencing a move of the spirit. So as a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old, I just want to articulate what was normal for me as we gathered in spaces like this. It was normal to walk into the room and to see grown men and women bent double under the power of God. It was normal for me to walk into the room as a kid and see people weeping as they encounter the love of their father. It was normal for me to hear people laughing uncontrollably as the joy of the Lord hit their body and soul. It was normal to see and hear stories week in, week out of people coming to faith. Week in, week out experiencing physical healing. Week in, week out being set free from addictions, demonic oppression. That was the norm for me as a kid. And when you're really young and this stuff is happening week in, week out, that gets hold of your imagination. Now, fast forward the clock, 20, 30 years, I refuse to embrace a new normal where we see a trickle of salvation every so often through the Alpha course and other such courses. I refuse to embrace a new normal where we don't really experience that many signs and wonders. The new normal where you can sometimes watch people worship and, and they look fairly disengaged. The new normal of the signs and wonders of the kingdom being fairly rare. I refuse to embrace that as a new normal. So the cry of my heart has been the prayer of Habakkuk 3. Lord, I've heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. I've seen and I've witnessed some of that as a kid. And I've read the stories of the Wesleyan revival. And I've read the stories of the Welsh revival in 1904. And I've read the stories of the Hebridean revival in 1949. And the Azusa Street revival. And the list goes on. I've heard the stories, but I don't want to just read the stories. I want to get caught up in the stories. I want to see your spirit hit the church right here, right now, in Portland this weekend. That's what I'm longing for. Is that in your heart? The same spirit is here right now. I want to tell you one of my favourite stories of the Hebridean revival. Um, when I was on sabbatical a few years ago, I went to visit this island to, to meet some people that 
Many years ago, when they were seven, eight, nine, ten, they were caught up in that revival. Now in their 80s and 90s, they were telling me the stories, joy beaming from their faces. This is one of the stories. Now, the revival began with two ladies, Peggy and Christine Smith. And they were gathering week in, week out, praying that the rains from heaven would fall upon the dry ground. And people began to join them in prayer. Now, Duncan Campbell, who was the minister in charge at Barvis, wrote in his journal some of the stories of, of how the revival hit the land. This is one of the stories then. He writes this. One night, now this is what I'm anxious for you to get hold of. One night, they were kneeling there in the barn, pleading this promise from Isaiah. I will pour water on him that is thirsty, floods upon the dry ground. When one young man, a deacon in the church, got up and read Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing of the Lord. And then that young man closed his Bible and looking down at the minister and the other office bearers, he said this, maybe crude words, but perhaps not so crude in our Gaelic language. He said, get ready for it. It seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And then he lifted his two hands, and I'm telling you, just as the minister told me it happened, he lifted his two hands and prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? But he got no further. That young man fell to his knees and then fell into a trance. Now, don't ask me to explain this because I can't. He fell into a trance and is now lying on the floor of the barn. And in the words of the minister, at that moment, he and his other office bearers were gripped by the conviction that a God-sent revival must ever be related to holiness, must ever be related to godliness. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? The person that God will trust with revival, that is the condition. And when that happened in the barn, the power of God swept into the parish. An awareness of God gripped the community such as hadn't been known for over a hundred years. An awareness of God, that's revival, that's revival. And on the following day, the looms were silent. Little work was done on the farms as men and women gave themselves to thinking on eternal things gripped by eternal realities. It starts with one guy in a prayer meeting saying, God, I want to get right with you. I want to ascend the hill of the Lord. Lord, give me clean hands. Give me a pure heart. How does Psalm 24 continue? Swing wide, you heavenly gates. Let the King of glory in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Swing wide, you heavenly gates. Gates. And what happened in the Hebrides, 1949, the Lord did swing wide the gates of heaven and the King of glory came in. Now, the stories that followed that prayer meeting, they are mind-blowing. You should read it in Duncan Campbell's diary. Let me just read you one more story. This is a few nights after the prayer meeting. Duncan Campbell writes, I'll never forget this night. We got to the church about a quarter to nine to find about 300 people gathered. 
I would say about 300 people, and I gave an address. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting, a sense of God, and a consciousness of his spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. I mean, that sounds great to me. <laughs> sense of God, consciousness of his spirit, I'll settle for that. So I pronounced the benediction, and we were leaving the church, I'd say about a quarter to 11. Just as I'm walking down the aisle, along with this young deacon who read the psalm in the barn, he suddenly stood in the aisle, looking up to the heavens, he said, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. Soon, he's on his knees in the aisle and he's still praying and then he falls into a trance. Again, obviously a regular thing. Just then, (laughs) the door opened. It's now 11 o'clock. The door of the church opens and the local blacksmith comes to the back of the church and says, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, we were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. When I went to the door of the church, I saw a congregation of approximately 600 people. Now, I spent a week in Barvis. I only bumped into about five people. There's no one there. It's the most remote place you could possibly imagine, but 600 people. Where had they come from? What had happened? I believe that that very night, God swept in Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Ghost, and what happened in the early days of the apostles was happening now in the parish of Barvas. Over 100 young people were at the dance in the parish hall, and they weren't thinking of God or eternity. God was not in all of their thoughts. They were there to have a good night, you know what I mean, when suddenly the power of God fell upon the dance. The music stopped, And in a matter of minutes, the hall was empty. They fled from the hall as a man fleeing from a plague and they made for the church. They are now standing outside. Oh yes, they saw the lights in the church. That was a house of God and they were going to it and they went. Men and women who'd gone to bed, rose, got dressed and made for the church. Nothing in the way of publicity. But God took the situation in hand. Oh, he became his own publicity agent. A hunger and a thirst gripped the people. 600 of them are now at the church standing outside. And then the doors were opened and the congregation flocked back into the church. Now the church is crowded. A church to see over 800 is packed to capacity. It's now going on towards midnight. I managed to make my way through the crowd along the aisle towards the pulpit. I found a young woman teacher in the grammar school lying prostrate on the floor of the pulpit praying, oh God. Is there mercy for me? Oh God, is there mercy for me? She was one of those at the dance, but she's now lying on the floor of the pulpit, crying to God for mercy. That meeting continued until four o'clock in the morning. So we left them there. And just as I was leaving the church, a young man came to me and said, Mr. Campbell, I'd like you to go to the police station. This is four in the morning. I said, the police station, what's wrong? Oh, he said, there's nothing wrong but there must be at least 400 people gathered around the police station just now. What were they doing at the police station? They were trying to get right with God. Like Duncan Campbell asked the question, why the police station if you want to get right with God? His only explanation was next to the police station was the cottage of Peggy and Christine Smith. 
It's like their prayers for the presence of God to fall must have created a gravitational pull. And now 400 young people are outside the cottage saying, God, is there mercy for us? We want to get right with you. You read the story of any revival, there are two forerunners to revival. Movements of prayer and movements of holiness. As modeled by that young guy, I want to get right with you. I want to ascend the hill of the Lord. Give me clean hands and a pure heart. That is what you call, by the way, undivided devotion. When we talk about holiness in the church, what often comes to mind is moral purity, being set apart for the purposes of God, living counterculturally, following the way of Jesus, whatever language you might use. And absolutely, that's a part of holiness. I would describe that as the fruit of holiness. But what is the root of holiness? The root of holiness is undivided devotion to Jesus. I love these words of Chuck DeGroat who says this, we need to reimagine holiness not through the lens of perfectionism, but through the lens of our utter oneness with God through the lens of our utter oneness with God. If you were to ask people in the Jewish community about holiness, they would probably quote Deuteronomy 6. This is the Shema, the prayer that the Jewish community pray day in, day out, perhaps the most formative of the prayers that the Jewish community pray. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is undivided in his devotion towards us. And for us to reflect his oneness to the world, we need to be undivided in our devotion towards him, which is why the prayer continues. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's the root of holiness, which leads to the fruit of holiness, obedience to the commands. These are the commandments that I give you today. They are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up and when you check your social media feed, that's the message translation, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, be wholehearted in your obedience to the way of the kingdom. But notice the order here. Wholehearted obedience follows wholehearted devotion. The root leads to the fruit. You see this in the Ten Commandments. The foundation of the Ten Commandments are the three commandments about worship. No other gods, no images. Do not use the Lord's name in vain, right? That's the root. And from that, you have all the other commandments. What happens if you extract the first three commandments? You end up with a vision of spiritual formation without undivided devotion. Right? That is possible to embrace a spirituality that has spiritual formation without undivided devotion, that does all the right stuff but misses out on the intimacy of walking closely with Jesus. And spiritual formation without undivided devotion is a spirituality empty of power and empty of joy. 
So I want to ask the question, what does undivided devotion to Jesus look like? And the obvious answer, and it's the right answer, it looks like honoring God with every part of our lives. We honor God with the way we do marriage and the way we do singleness and the way we do dating and the kind of employees that we are and how we spend our money and how we politically engage and the list goes on. We honor God with every part of our lives, right? But for the purposes of tonight, I wanna zoom in on what happens when the people of God gather together to collectively host his presence, that moment becomes a landing pad for the spirit to move, right? That really was the story of the charismatic renewal movement. John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard, his background, he was a singer-songwriter in the Righteous Brothers. He got saved, he came to faith, he trained, became this church leader, theologian, but at the base of it all, he was fundamentally a worship leader. Lots of the songs of the vineyard movement were penned by John Wimber and they learned how to host the presence of God and the spirit landed on the praises of the people and the signs and wonders began to flow. Right? I think you see this with, with Beth or whatever you think of Beth or I'm pretty sure we can agree that they have created a culture where they collectively host the presence of God and that creates a landing pad for the spirit to move and signs and wonders begin to flow. Do you want that bridge down? Like, isn't that what we are longing for? So how do we host the presence of God? What does undivided devotion to Jesus look like? Well, I wanna use Gary Chapman's work, um, The Five Love Languages. Put your hand in the air if you've read this book. Right, this book has done so, so well. And, and this, this is true in, in, in the Western context, it's really true in America, that when a book does well, you milk it for all it's worth, right? <laughs> so there, there are the five love languages for kids, the five love languages for teens, and for those dating and those engaged, the five love languages for married couples, the five love languages for how you engage with your pets. I mean, that, that book is readily available for every situation. There isn't the book of the five love languages of how we engage in worship. So there's, there's a you know, little gap in the market and I'm gonna step right in. Um, and I'm only gonna look at the first two, but I, I, I wanna talk about words of affirmation in the context of worship, the power of our singing. I don't know if you've ever been for dinner when you're sort of in the restaurant and you notice a couple, perhaps an older couple, and they're not really talking to each other and there's zero eye contact, and there's no chemistry, like the spark has gone. My wife often spots those couples, and she'll say, Pete, please may that never, and I mean never, happen to us. I look at the ground, I, I go completely silent just to wind her up. And, <laughs> but I, I'm in total agreement. But what if we've embraced some of that in the church? Like our worship has become quite transactional and quite functional and devoid of intimacy. Like isn't that what we long for to recapture that? Our words are so significant in that journey. We are made in the image and likeness of a God who creates through speech. This is one of the, the unique things of the Hebrew creation story. The God of Israel speaks creation into being. He says, let there be light and there is he doesn't think the world into being, he speaks the world into being and we are made like him. 
That means what we speak into the atmosphere shifts things in the atmosphere. When we proclaim that Jesus is king, guess what? His kingdom begins to break in. When we proclaim that his, he is Lord, his lordship becomes a reality in our lives. Like it's very different to looking at a screen and reading good theology. That's quite fun, but there's something better than that, which is speaking it into the atmosphere and seeing the transformation that it brings. Like here's the truth that you'll come up against time and time again in scripture, that breakthroughs come as the people of God find their voice in praise. So a great example of this would be Jericho. Like the people go into battle with Jericho at their weakest. As they're getting ready to cross the Jordan, God says, I want you to consecrate yourselves. Tomorrow, something incredible is going to happen, but today I want you to consecrate yourselves. And what that meant was the fighting men were circumcised before going into battle. Now, as a military strategy, that is horrible, right? <laughs> you, you don't send your fighting men into battle at their weakest unless God is trying to teach them something, that he's not looking for a display of their strength, he's looking for undivided devotion. He would rather they be weak but set apart than strong and not consecrated. So they go into battle at their weakest because God's power is made perfect in our weakness. They march around the city for six days. On the seventh day, they march around it seven times. They raise a shout and the walls come down. Like just imagine that moment. It was just a shout of praise that brought the walls down that led to the breakthrough. Another epic story, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. These vast armies are collaborating to come against the people of God and annihilate them. And then this happens. King Jehoshaphat gathers the people together and he prays to God, and this is what he says in his prayer. He says, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us and we do not know what to do. Those are not the words you want to hear from the commander in chief, right? Hey, we've actually got zero power when it comes to facing the vast army. And I've consulted with all my military advisors, we're in agreement, we have no idea what to do. <laughs> I just want you to be aware, no power, no idea, and then six words that change everything. But our eyes are on you. But our eyes are on you, God. You're gonna have to do something. And then a prophet begins to speak to the people. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go and face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. Amazing. Well, I'd love to hear the story afterwards. Thank you so much. Let's chat afterwards. I'd love to hear the story of that. So this is a, a moment where basically God says, here's your task. You stand firm and I'll do the advancing, right? You just stand firm. 
I'll do the advancing. This is what Paul teaches the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter six says, when it comes to spiritual warfare, here's the principle, you just stand your ground. As you stand your ground, God will take ground. You just do the standing, but it's not a passive standing. In the standing, we are worshiping God. We are lifting our voices in praise. I wanna encourage you, be attentive to the songs that we sing. Notice in each season of your life, what are the songs of that moment? More often than not, they are the soundtrack to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Be attentive to the songs that we are singing. Let's go back to um, 2019, pre-COVID, remember that? Um, What were the songs that you were singing week in, week out here at Ridgetown? I'm gonna hazard a guess because they're the same songs we were killing in central London, right? Just doing too much to the point where you hate these songs. Um, But this was the first song. I'll raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I'll raise a hallelujah. Louder than the unbelief. I'll raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. I'll raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me. And I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm. What, What do you think? the Spirit was preparing the church for. Maybe the Spirit was saying, look, a storm is coming, but there is a way through the storm. And here's the way through the storm. You raise a hallelujah. You don't just think it, you speak it into the atmosphere that Jesus is King and his kingdom will break in. Think of this song. There's a table you prepared for me. In the presence of my enemies, it's your body and blood you've shed for me, and this is how I fight my battles. My weapon is praise and thanksgiving, this is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. What do you think the Spirit was saying to the church? Like, it's gonna get messy, guys, like, get ready. It's going to be a moment where it feels like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Here's how you're going to navigate that moment. You feast on the abundance of God's house. He's going to prepare a table for you. And there's going to be moments where you feel surrounded, but you need to know a greater truth. You are surrounded by the armies of heaven, right? Think about this song. You might not know this one. Martin Smith just written this new song. It's been in my head all weekend. Um, I love it. I'm gonna sing my way out of trouble. I'm gonna sing till I am free. I think he does it lower. My God will find me here in the rubble. Oh, rock of ages, won't you save me once again? Join me. And I'm gonna sing my way out of trouble. I'm gonna sing till I am free. My God will find me here in the rubble. Oh, rock of ages, won't you save me once again? How do we navigate a moment like this? You sing your way out of it. You praise your way out of it. 
You don't stare at a screen and read good theology. That's great. You declare it into the atmosphere. It shifts things in the atmosphere. Here's the second love language I just want to zoom in on, physical touch. We don't buy into the understanding of the enlightenment that we're rational beings transported by our bodies, right? We know we're holistic beings. And therefore, we can use our bodies in worship. And in using our bodies, we can lead our hearts and souls into the presence of God. So listen to the language of the Psalms. Lift up your hands. That's not just the crazy charismatics that do that. It's the people of God throughout the ages. Clap your hands. That's not just for the kinos. It's for the people of God. Bow down. That's not just for the really intense guys and girls. This is for the people of God. Use your bodies in worship. Our postures in worship are incredibly important. I want to say that again. Our postures in worship are incredibly important. Psychologists often talk about emotion as energy in motion, energy moving through your body. So sadness is an emotion that pulls your body down, right? Joy is an emotion that moves your body up, right? So think of your soccer team, and it pains me calling it a soccer team because it's really a football team. But, but, but think of when your soccer team scores a goal. You don't even need to think about it, right? Hands go in the air. That's an experience of joy. Watch kids when they're happy. Hands go in the air. Now that's, that's a, a gesture, right? But when you do the same gesture again and again and again, it begins to affect your posture. You develop a new posture. We've been walking through such a challenging season where we've experienced such disappointment, moments of deep despair, Some have walked through trauma and our bodies tell the story. There's probably been a lot of downward movement and it's affected our posture. So we know it to be true that our postures reflect our surroundings. They tell the story of what we've been through. But as the people of God, we also know it to be true that our postures transform our surroundings. They tell the story of what is to come. Thomas Merton, the Catholic writer, said, our lives are shaped by the end we live for. So when we contemplate the end of our story as God and humanity become one, as heaven and earth are reconciled, as Christ and the church get married, and there's no death, no grief, no crying, no pain, everything restored to how it was meant to be in the beginning in Eden, when there's no sin, no sickness, no suffering, humanity fully alive in relationship with God. As you contemplate it, what happens? Joy fills your being. And when you think about the goodness and the character of God, joy fills your being. And these gestures shape our postures. And as our postures shift, we engage in our surroundings in such a different way. Let me give you a quick example of this. The story of Joshua and Caleb as they go and check out the land. Right, so Moses sends them into the land. They come back and the dominant voice is, it's amazing, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's some of the fruit, but there's giants in the land and we don't stand a chance. And there were two voices singing a different tune, Joshua and Caleb. Listen to what it says. Caleb silenced the people, the crowd before Moses, says, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. 
like God has promised us this land. He is faithful. We can do this, right? That is a statement of faith. Listen to what it says of, of Caleb in Numbers 14. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and he follows me wholeheartedly, we, we might translate that because he has a different posture to those around and he is undivided in his devotion, I'm gonna bring him into the land and his descendants will inherit it. What's different about Joshua and Caleb? It's a different posture, right? They've developed a different posture and it's the posture of faith that begins to affect how they engage in their surroundings. I wanna close with a story. Back in 2018, we as a church in central London, we recorded a live album. And um, we were flying two producers over from the States to record this record, Jeremy Edwardson um, and a guy called Andrew Jackson. And we were so excited about this moment. We'd crafted 11 songs for this recording. And these songs were a soundtrack to what God was doing in the life of our community. And on the plane on the way over, things started to go wrong. Andrew started to feel sick and it deteriorated really fast to the point when they landed in Heathrow, he went into cardiac arrest. They rushed him to Harefield Hospital, one of the leading heart hospitals in London. And many of us rushed to get to this hospital and for the next three hours, we sat outside the operating theatre praying for a miracle, praying God would spare his life. And after about three hours of contending and praying, he passed away. And it was totally heartbreaking. And we drove home with Andrew's best mate, Jeremy Edwardson. And, and what do you say in a moment like that where you've watched your best friend pass away? And we basically said to Jeremy, like, we, just, we should cancel this live recording. It's, like, it's just way more important that you go home to be with your family and to be with Andrew's family. And he said he wanted to sleep on it. So the next morning we, we got together for breakfast and he basically said, I've thought about it and, and we need to go ahead because I want to honour the legacy of Andrew as a worshipper and he would want us to continue to record these songs as a gift to the wider church, celebrating the character and goodness of God. So we went ahead and for that week we were rehearsing and honing the songs. We were exhausted, totally heartbroken, shocked, experiencing some measure of trauma. And it got to the night, and this beautiful thing happened in the context of, of worship, where it began with lament, right, and then the lament moved towards intercession. Now, in the year building up to this live recording, we'd created a devotional book for the church, Basically, something like My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers, but not nearly quite as good, where 52 writers from our church took on a week and wrote devotional reflections so that the whole church could go on the same journey through the scriptures. And when we got to the 1st of March, which was the day of the recording, the entry for that day was from a guy called Rich in our community. And his reflection was on Luke 7, the woman who pours the alabaster jar of perfume on the feet of Jesus. And he shared the story of losing his best friend who committed suicide. And I want to read you the reflection that the whole church was reading on the day we gathered to record. He says this, in the last few months, 
I've cried more tears, sworn more profusely, felt more anger than I can remember. But the weirdest part is that in the middle of it all, I've also come to know more of God's immeasurable kindness. We worship a God who knows how to grieve. We worship a God who doesn't try and minimize the pain of loss. We worship a God who has mercy in our times of anger and frustration. We worship a God who knows when to speak and when just to hold us as we cry. Every human heart that's ever lived has experienced grief. Making the choice to worship in the middle of that pain has the power to transform it into something life-giving and beautiful. The tears will be cried either way. The choice we have is whether to pour them onto the feet of Jesus or not. Like, that is God going before us and saying, this is what you need to know in a moment like this. The tears will be cried either way. The choice is, are you going to worship in the middle of that? So we began to worship. This sound of lament began to rise, but then the lament turned into intercession. You could feel it in the room. The room, from a place of brokenness, were beginning to contend for some breakthroughs in King's Cross in, in our community. And I sensed it stirring. So I grabbed the mic and I told the story of Jericho that they went into battle at a point of great, great weakness. All they had to do was lift their voices and shout. So I said, look, we're gonna sing this chorus one more time. But at the end of the chorus, I know we're exhausted. I know we're broken. I know we're grieving. But we're gonna lift the biggest shout we possibly can. And the prayer behind the shout is that the walls that stand in opposition to the kingdom of God in King's Cross, we're praying that the walls would come tumbling down because we want to see an outpouring of the spirit. We want to see a revival in the church that leads to an awakening in the culture. Are you ready to shout? And I want to play you a recording, just a two-minute clip from that night as we, a broken-hearted community, began to say to God, but our eyes are on you. So cue the track. Okay, so we're gonna sing this middle eight one more time and let's use this song as a prayer as we cry out to God for His kingdom to come, His will to be done here in this amazing city in the heart of King's Cross. And at the end of the middle eight, we're gonna raise an almighty shout. We want the heavens to hear it. We want the people of King's Cross to hear it. And as we shout out to our Father in heaven, we're asking that the walls that stand in opposition to God's kingdom here in King's Cross, that these walls would come tumbling down, that the King of glory would come in. So let's begin to lift our voices as we pray, lift our voices as we sing. And when the time is right, we're gonna raise a mighty shout. Are you ready?
I could, I could tell you story after story after story of the breakthroughs that came about in our church community because of that shout from a point of brokenness. We lifted our hands in faith and we raised our voices saying, God, would you do something? Would you break in? Do you know that was a beautiful moment, but the most beautiful moment of the night as we were lifting our voices to worship God, I looked up to the balcony. Andrew's mum and dad had flown over because they wanted to be part of the last ever project that their son worked on. Now, the mum was like heavily jet-lagged. Their flight had come in only a few hours before. She was in deep grief. She was feeling really sick, and she was emotionally spent. But as we raised a shout, and as we lift our voices, I looked to the balcony, and here she is, hands in the air, declaring the goodness of God, praying, through, praying for a breakthrough of the kingdom in King's Cross. Like, that is undivided devotion. That is undivided devotion. Like, this is my simple message, that this is the time for us to be like the deacon in the story of the Hebridean revival, to say, I, I don't wanna be in just more prayer meetings and, and more gatherings. Like, I'm, I'm longing for something deeper. I wanna ascend the hill of the Lord. I, I want you to swing wide the gates of heaven. I want the king of glory to come in. So this is my prayer. Would you get me ready for that? Would you give me clean hands and a pure heart, God? I want to be undivided in my devotion to Jesus. When the church is undivided in its devotion to Jesus, that's when revivals begin to break out. That's when the spirit of God begins to...